Well, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are honored that you decided to be with us today. Last Sunday was Easter, and it was a great day. We had 1,731 of your friends and neighbors who were here on Easter Sunday with us, which was an awesome day. And so if you came back, we're really glad we're ending a series today. Uh, just so you can kind of get a, a, a sense of where we are, where we're going, what, what will benefit you as we go through this next several weeks. Um, the last series we did, it was called Overwhelmed, was about where you've been and the things that are holding you back. Uh, the series that's ending today is about who you are right now in the present moment, who God sees you to be. And uh, the next series is going to be about where you need to go in your life. Uh, did you know that if you want to be like anybody Really, the core of what you need to do is just imitate them. Like, say you're not good at money, uh, find someone who's really good at money and just do whatever they do. Guess what will happen? You get good at money. Uh, If you're not healthy, find someone who's good at eating and exercising. Just do whatever they do. I promise you, you'll get the same results. That's what it means to follow somebody. And so we're going to look at the life of Jesus, because here's my goal for you as a pastor, is that you would learn to live a life like Jesus. You'd have an action plan for a Christ-like life. And so we're just going to look at the life of Jesus, what are the things Jesus actually did with his day and his schedule and his time. And if we did those same things, what would come into our life? So that's, that's what it's called. We're calling it boot camp. Uh, we're not going to do push-ups, uh, just so you know. There you go. Uh, I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would. We always read a passage of Scripture. We put it on the screen. I'll read it aloud. You can follow along. We're looking in this series, uh, as we wrap it up today, from the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote in the New Testament. I'll read it aloud. Here we go. You ready? Paul says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. Paul, writing here, is sitting in prison. He's getting ready to wait for a sentence that will result in his death. That's what he's saying. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one For the faith of the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks so much for standing. While we're learning about enough, being enough, having enough, doing enough, Jesus is enough. We went over that for uh, several weeks. And today, I want to talk to you, kind of, I would just almost say that this, what we're going to talk about today, is in effect the yeast that makes the bread rise. It's kind of the the heart and soul of what Paul's uh, trying to write to us about in the the letter to Philippians. And, And it's this is that uh, you and I need a, a personal sense on our own heart uh, that simply says this to us. I am enough. And now I'm not, I'm not saying you need to hear me say that to you. Uh, I'm not saying you need to read about that somewhere and hear about it as a nice idea. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Um, What I'm talking about is that you know that you, in you, inside beating in your own chest, is the sense on your own heart, in your own experience, in your own life, that says to you, I am enough. 
Now we need that for the negative things in our life. Uh, we, we need to know that when we're in a strained relationship and we're afraid that it's going to come apart and we're going to lose an important person in our life, we need to know that we're enough. Uh, we, we need to know that we're enough when we're in debt and the debt collectors are calling and and am I going to have to declare bankruptcy on this? What's going to happen in my future? Am I going to lose my house? We need on our heart the sense that I'm enough. But I want to suggest to you that we also need that sense on our heart for the positive things in our life. Say you get a promotion and you get to do a job that you've never done before. You need to know in your own heart that you're enough, that you can do this job. If you're in a new season or you're starting a, a, a new relationship. You need to know in your own soul that you are enough, a sense on your heart that you are adequate to the task. It's, from, from a Christian perspective, we'd say it like this. You need to be able to hear the voice of God saying to you in, in your own soul, uh, you, you are enough. That you hear a voice from God saying, you've got this. Without it, what will happen is that you will quit. You'll you'll metaphorically quit. You'll just go through the motions in your life, but you'll have checked out. Or in reality, you'll run. Did you know that some people leave your life, and the reason they leave your life is not because of you, but it's because of the fear in them, and they thought, I'm not enough, so I'm out of here. I'm I'm quitting. You, You need what Paul had facing this trial when he knows that he's about to die, and he knows this is a death sentence, And he's able to, in effect, say, I am enough. He hears that voice, and then he's able to rise above. And so we're sitting here today because he heard that voice. And you could hear that voice, too. Uh, But here's here's what I want you to do. I I want you to see uh, two components um, that, when they're tied together, prevent you and I from hearing that voice. They they, they kind of are, are... in a, in a, I would call a symbiotic relationship. Do you know what I mean when I say symbiotic? Like they depend on each other. It, this is kind of a graphic image, but it would be like a fly and a carcass. It's kind of nasty, but they rely on each other. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, here's, here's the first part of that. The first part of that is this uh, sense that we all feel, the pull that we're supposed to be doing more. <laughs> There's got to be more that we're doing. I, I love the mountains. I've always loved the mountains. I've always loved uh, going to the mountains. I've always loved hiking in the mountains. I've always loved climbing mountains. And, and probably my, my favorite mountain that I've never been to, but I, I really want to at some point in my life at least go near it, not up it, but is Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. It's in Nepal, Tibet, that area, um, Asia. And uh, 29,000 feet is how tall uh, Mount Everest is. And the very first man to climb all the way to the top of Mount Everest, at least that we know of, um, was Sir Edmund Hillary. He did it in the 1950s. This is a picture of him and uh, uh, the, the porter that carried the, basically carried the stuff, Tenzing Norgay is his name. He's a, a Tibetan guy. And he reached the top of Mount Everest, the first human being uh, to reach 29,000 feet by his own power. And, and when they asked Sir Edmund Hillary, why did you do that? His answer was very plain. He said... Because it is there. <laughs> I, I climbed it. Now, you got to get a sense of the scale of this. 29,000 feet, for those of you that don't know, is basically how, fly, how high uh, airplanes fly. No oxygen. Um, we got a picture here of uh, one of the, the backside of Mount Everest. You can kind of see the route that people take when they go to climb it. People climb this every year. 
It's an adventure. They pay thousands of dollars for someone to take them to the top. And you can kind of see the camps up there. If you can kind of see, kind of almost down from the top and then down from the little ridge there is camp four. And so what they'll do is the climbers will acclimatize. They'll go up to one camp, spend some time there, come back down, spend the night, go up a little further, come back to that camp, spend the night. Until they get to camp four, it takes them a month or two to, to acclimatize to that level because the elevation is so high. And what will happen is the day that they summit, they will get up at about two or three in the morning while it's still dark. They'll put all their clothes on, they'll strap a headlight on, and they'll start up the mountain. And, and the conditions have to be perfect. There can't be a weather storm coming in. There can't be any snow. Uh, they've got to be able to make it up and make it down. So they have to start early. And they go up. And if you can kind of see there, as you go up from Camp 4, and then the, the mountain turns, uh, turns like this, would be your direction. Uh, that's uh, about 28,000 feet. 28,000 feet, for those of you who do not know, is what's known as the death zone. Literally, when you cross that elevation, your body starts shutting down and dying. And so you've got a very limited amount of time to make it to the top before you die. And every single year, there are people who die, and there's not a lot of people who do the, attempt this every year, people who die when they are climbing up the mountain. They die on their way to the top. Now, I hope you can see the metaphor that I'm trying to paint. The, the, the metaphor I'm trying to say is this pull of something more, is people are trying in, in their minds to get to the top, whatever that is, whatever the top is. They think that's where they're supposed to be, and they say, well, it's there. Everybody says that's where you're supposed to go, so I'm going to climb it, or at least I'm going to try. And many people, metaphorically speaking, die on the way up from this pull of something more. Now, here's what I want to suggest to you, uh, that that pull for something more that everybody seems to agree is what we're all supposed to be doing is just a thing. It's just there. It doesn't mean you have to climb it. We have a word for that whole idea of going to the top. We call it the rat race. You understand that the rat race is full of rats, right? <laughs> why, why do we want to go up where there's a bunch of rats? Uh, now, now, just so you understand, I'm, I'm not talking about ambition here, okay? Uh, for about a third of us in the room, I'm in this category, one of the, the core things that drives us is just a sense that we want to accomplish a lot in life, and we want to make a difference, and we want to uh, do something significant with our life. A and I would suggest to you that there is a holy ambition in us that God puts in us that wants to bless as many people as possible. And I would, as a pastor, say to you, hey, stir that up. But what I'm talking about is that pull for more when it becomes a sense of unrest in your soul that you can't ever settle and you're always restless and you always feel like you're not quite getting there. Uh, it's what in, in biblical language, what Jesus and what Paul, what they referred to as the world. It's the voice that's contrary to the voice of God and shouts at you to do better. It's the voice that rewards the people who are at the top and ridicules the people that are at the bottom. But here is what I want to say to you. I want you to hear this. It's just a thing that people decided you need to do. It's, it's an illusion. And I am praying as your pastor that you would be disillusioned by the charms and the voice of the world. Do you hear what I'm saying? John says it this way in his letter in 1 John in the New Testament. He says, the world and its desires are passing away. And, and what I would suggest instead is that you would do what Paul did. 
Paul ran an entirely different race. The, the race marked out for us is an entirely different race than the rat race. The rat race is full of the rats. Paul said, he, he, said, listen, he said things like this, I know the race marked out for me, and in store for me is a crown of life. When you try to climb up the top, you either step on people or you get stepped on or you're with the rats, and when you get to the top, you find out it's not quite what you thought it would be, and there's really no one there, and you're often very much alone. And what Paul says, well, if you mark, run the race that God's marked out for you, in store for you is a crown of life. So Paul said, I don't run aimlessly. I said, I beat my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others about the message of Jesus, then I myself won't be disqualified for the prize. So there's this, on, on one hand, this pull for more that messes with that sense in our heart that we're enough. Uh, the second part of that symbiotic fly and carcass relationship is how you see yourself and how you see your identity. If we were to go for lunch or we were to go for coffee, and uh, I, I was just to ask you, say, hey, tell me, who are you? Uh, what you would likely say, and I'm being very stereotypical here, if you're a, a, a woman, most women will answer that question in terms of the roles that they play. I'm a mom, or I'm a daughter. Uh, most men, and I, again, I'm stereotyping, uh, most men will respond in terms of the tasks that they accomplish, like I'm a mill worker, I'm a business owner. Um, you've heard of fake news. I, I want to tell you that this way of thinking about ourselves is fake thinking. <laughs> it's, it's a false way of defining ourselves, and here's why. There's going to come a point, mom, when your kids are gone, they don't need you in the same way anymore. Who are you then? Uh, there's going to come a point, business owner, when you're going to sell that business or you're going to lose that business and you no longer are needed by your employees and your suppliers. And then who are you at that point? Because that way of thinking doesn't define you the way that God defines you. And how does, how does God define us? God defines us like a dad defines a son or a mother defines a daughter. We look at our kids and we don't look at them and say, that's my straight A honor student. Now we may say that, but we're just proud of something they've accomplished. But that's not how we fundamentally refer to them. We don't look at our kids and say, that's my little athlete. Again, we may be proud of that accomplishment. What do we say? That's my son. That's my daughter. And the way God defines you is like that. You're defined by who you belong to, not by what you do. Do you see that? And if you engage in fake thinking, then it's, it's the fly and the carcass, and you can never hear the voice that says to you, you are enough. You can never hear the voice of God that whispers that to you in your soul. Uh, an example that I think of that just jumps right out at, at me uh, is an example from the Old Testament. Uh, Moses. Moses is, uh, was a uh, Hebrew slave in Egypt. Egypt was a superpower of the time. And, <coughs> excuse me, they, uh, the, the Hebrew slaves um, were going to be uh, um, killed. And the, the mom of Moses somehow got him, worked her way so she could be handed, uh, he could be handed off to the, the princess, the, the daughter of the pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And he, so Moses is raised, he's adopted, and he's raised um, with a very high level of education, a very high level of wealth. I mean, his pedigree, and just couldn't have had a better, a better background. 
Uh, Moses finds out later in his life that he's adopted. He goes and kills an Egyptian. They chase him out, and he goes, flees out into the wilderness. He finds a woman. He marries her. Uh, he then tends the flocks for his father-in-law because he's got nothing else to do. And he goes one day in Exodus chapter 3, and he sees a bush that burns and is not consumed. It's a famous passage in the Bible. And he sees this bush. He goes over to the bush. He turns aside, the scriptures say. Uh, and he turns aside and he sees the bush. And, and he hears a voice from the bush say, Moses, take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to God right now. What is going on? He's having this, this experience. And Moses proceeds to do what all of us do when we are asked to do something. We're asked by God to accomplish a task. He makes excuses because he hears, you know, ah, yeah, I'm enough. But then he makes all the excuses that all of us make to say, nah, I'm not. I'm really not. And if you uh, read it, I'd, I'd encourage you to read it uh, later today, Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4, the interchange. You're, I think you're meant to see that it's kind of funny because you see God get increasingly frustrated with Moses because Moses throws up excuse after excuse because um, God says, listen, I'm going to use you and you're going to set my people free. And Moses is like, well, and this is how he responds, Exodus 3. He says, uh, Moses says, well, who am I? <laughs> In other words, I'm nobody. And so God says, listen, no, no, you're not nobody. I'm going to be with you. I made you. I'm going to be with you. Gives him this reason why he ought to believe that. And then Moses says, okay, well, okay, all right, fine. I'll go to them and I'm going to say this. You know, you sent me. But, well, what am I going to tell them? Another excuse. What am I going to say to them? And then a very famous passage, God reveals his name to Moses. He says that I am, in, in the Hebrew language, Yahweh. Uh, the, the word there is the Hebrew word for existence itself. I am, I am who I am. I am, I am the Lord. Uh, it's, capital, it's translated in, in small caps, L-O-R-D. Uh, I am the Lord. I am who I am. I will be with you. I'm the one that's going to walk uh, with you through this whole thing. And then Moses still doesn't believe that. And he says, well, okay, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And then God gives him this sign. He says, what's in your hand? Moses, it's a staff. Throw it down. He throws it down. Turns into a snake. And picks it back up. Turns back into a staff. Puts his hand in his cloak. And it becomes leprous. He pulls it back out. It's fine. He says, take those signs with you. And they'll believe you when these things happen. I mean, God's trying to show him. I'm, listen, I've got your back. But then Moses says, uh, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent. And then God's response is, what do you mean you've never been eloquent? I made people. I made tongues. I made eyes. I made you with your abilities. What do you mean you've never been eloquent? I can put whatever words I want in your mouth. And then Moses, you're meant to see this as humorous. I'm, I'm sure of it. Moses says, uh, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and the text in Exodus 4 says, and, and God's anger burned against Moses, and he basically says, fine. It doesn't your brother Aaron like to talk? Send him. He'll go with you, right? This is, this is what happens to us when we, we hear that voice. We have excuse after excuse that says, no, I'm not enough, and here's why. I'm not enough because of this. I'm not enough because of that. And, and God's trying to get the message through to us that we're enough. Whisper it into our chest that we hear it. Now, let me tell you what won't work uh, in terms of hearing this voice. What won't work is you just attempting to be positive, uh, to, be, to think a little more uh, positively about your situation and about your life and, and to post memes on Facebook about how it's going to be a great day today and everything's going to be awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that's not going to do it. That's not gonna, you need something more substantial than that. 
Because that's not the experience of Paul. Paul wasn't just, let's just think more positively about the situation. I mean, that's, that's helpful, but it's not going to get you there. What Paul does instead is he teaches us his secret. And he says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, Paul, get the picture again. Paul is sitting in prison. He is going to his death. He knows this is the end. He knows this is curtains for him. There's nothing else he can do. And he says in that moment when everything has caved in on him, listen, guys, if I live, it's all Christ. If I die, I'm with him. Either way, I'm totally fine. Now, wouldn't you like to have that level of confidence when anything happens to you in your life? You go to the doctor this week, and the doctor says, I got bad news for you. You got cancer. Wouldn't you love to be, have the confidence to really mean it, not just as a platitude, to, but to be able to say, oh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If the debt collectors come and they say, listen, it's been a while and we're getting ready to take the house this week, uh, this is it, wouldn't you love to have the confidence, really mean the confidence? I'm not talking just make this up and just work yourself into an emotional lather here. I, I'm, I mean, you really mean it. You really say, well, you know what? For me to live is Christ to die is gain. You, you hear about a job that you think is going to pay you a few thousand more dollars and you think that's going to solve all your problems. Instead, you have the confidence to say, you know what, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's, here's what Paul is saying when he says that. He's saying that he has been so consumed by Christ that nothing else matters. Everything else pales. It's like, the, like, like Jesus shines so brightly that in comparison to Jesus in Paul's life, everything else is in the shadows. He's absolutely consumed by Jesus. He's absolutely consumed by the voice that says to him, you're enough. Now, when I was growing up, it used to be said like this. It sounds kind of churchy, and, and I think it probably is. I don't know. But we, we used to have this phrase that we would say about somebody, and we would say, man, he sure loves the Lord. You know, she really loves the Lord. It was our way of saying that person has been consumed by Christ. And everything else pales in comparison. Wouldn't it be fantastic if as a church the thing that defined people when they met real lifers was they went, man, that person loves Jesus. I'm not talking about being weird. I'm just talking about it's just evident that something bigger is driving you than the pull of something more. I, 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 I think that would love it. Listen, I, I don't care how positive you are it doesn't really matter if you don't love Jesus. Jesus is not, an, an, not a means for you to get to a positive outlook on life. Jesus is the end itself. This is what Paul knew. He even describes this kind of, uh, this way of life, that, how he got to this place being consumed by Christ in his letter to the Christians in Colossae. It's in Colossians chapter 3. We'll put it on the screen for you um, in the message translation. He says this. He says, you, you're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Paul's like, there's an old you, and then there's a new you. And then he goes on. He says, every item of your new way of life is custom made. So old things don't apply anymore. All the labels that we use, all the words we use to, de to describe people and label them, whether they're in or they're out, they those are gone. And then he goes on, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He says it this way. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is is included in Christ. R read that out loud with me, would you? Ready? Here we go. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. Now, doesn't that sound fantastic? 
You know what makes the difference? When it's true of you. So let's change that. Let's change the pronouns and say, I am defined by Christ. I am included in Christ. Let's read it that way. You ready? Here we go. From now on, I am defined by Christ. I am included in Christ. That's the difference maker is when it's true for you. So this is what Paul enabled Paul to live above the fray. He had the sense on his heart that he was adequate to, to the task. Now, I, I got I to give you full disclosure here because when Paul is saying that Jesus is going to be the most important thing in his life, you, you need to understand what's in store for you and what you're being asked to do and what you will be asked to do. Paul defines it for us just a few verses later in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 5. He, he says this. He says, from now on, everyone is defined by Christ, right? He says, but in your relationships with one another, you're to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You're to have the same outlook, the same perspective, the same values as Christ Jesus. And then in case we're not quite sure what he means by that, he then goes on in verses 6 through 11, and he tells us what that means and what that looks like. Um, what he's actually doing here, we have it on the screen, I'm not going to read it all to you, is he's quoting a hymn. It would be like one of the songs we sang today, that maybe you love the song we sang today, and, and you find yourself during the week singing the tune of it. And maybe you, you see someone post the lyrics of a song and innocently the, the, the tune of that song comes. This is what Paul was doing. He was quoting a common hymn in his day. And he says, this is the mindset that Jesus had. He was in nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he made himself like a servant. And he took the lowest place. And he humbled himself. And he let himself be put on a cross. And so therefore, God has exalted him and given him the highest place. Because in the, in the end, everybody... We're all going to bow the knee to Jesus, whether we do it now or not. <laughs> we're all going to do it in the future. So let me make sure that we understand this, uh, what, what I'm talking about here when we say this, uh, because this is what's in store for you. So if you want to see, I'm, I'm a very, very talented artist. You're going to see here in just a second. Right? You can see there's Jesus the king, right? You got the crown. It's, I know, it's great. And, and we're, of course, you know, lower than Jesus. You know, here's us. And, and here we are. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is, is God, and so he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, what he does is he comes down to our level. And then he keeps going. And Paul says that what he does is he takes the nature of a servant and he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death even death on a cross, he, he takes the lowest place. I was in a, a, a setting uh, a few weeks ago, and um, I didn't know the people. People didn't know me. And uh, after the event that I was a part of was over, um, I, I, I went to help clean up, and I offered to the guy who was the leader of the organization, I said, hey, do you need any? I was just trying to, I had this running through my brain about being a servant, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a servant. Here we go. And I'm like, let me, can I help? And he's like, sure, you can help. And then you know what he did? He treated me like I was his servant. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm, a part of me is like, don't you know who I am? Like, hey. Everybody wants to be a servant until they're treated like one. <laughs> right? <laughs> what Paul says because this is the pattern, the descent pattern to the descent to greatness. Because Jesus, one day people came to Jesus like, Jesus, hey, who's the greatest? And Jesus said, I'll tell you who's the greatest. It's the person who serves everybody. 
So if you're going to submit your life to Christ, you're going to become the servant of everybody. And people are going to treat you that way. And you're going to go, okay, that's what Jesus did. So I'm, I'm not getting my props from them. I'm getting my props from him. And so Paul says in this hymn, he says, and so because of that, God then exalts Jesus and puts him to the highest place. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess on the earth and under the earth. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that's, so that's your pattern. If you follow Jesus, if you say, you know, for me to live is Christ, this is you being a servant. That's the outcome of your life. I hope you know what you're signing up for. <laughs> so let's just, let's just talk. Let's talk. Let's talk turkey here at the end of this series, okay? What, what do you got to do? In your ear, like in my ear, are the voices that say, you're not enough. Do a little bit more. You're what you do. You're what people say about you. You're what you have. And, and there, they block the voice of God that says and whispers into your chest, you're enough. So to, to clear that clutter, what you have to do is you have to surrender your life to Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about in word only. I'm talking about like, okay, Jesus, everything that I have, I'm putting at your disposal now. So what I do with my money you get to decide. See, that's always where the rubber meets the road for all of us. <laughs> it's all fine and good until we go, hey, spend your money differently. Like, whoa, whoa, hey, hold on there, buddy. Uh, Jesus, what I do with my body, who I let touch my body, I'll let you define that. See, now we go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You can't say that. Do you understand the reason Paul on death row could say, you know what, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, is he's already made this pattern, and he's already dead. He's already, he goes later and he says, uh, I've already died. I've already given up all my rights, and so no matter what country you're from or what constitution you live under, you're not going to argue for your rights if you're a follower of Jesus. You're going to give up your rights. Why? Because you said, you're the master, I'm the servant. So you have to surrender your life. You have to su surrender your life to Christ, and you receive life from Christ. Now, I'm, I'm listen. I'm not talking about doing some little thing here in this room. I'm talking about your actual life. Is it at all tiring to you to play church a little bit? Like you come in here, and and I mean, I'm glad you're here. I really am. But but you come here and you like get a little bit. And then you go out and you live a different life with a different set of values? D does it feel at all like you're two people? How about if you were one person? Well, the way you get to one person is you surrender your life to Christ. Not, 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 in, not in theory, in, in reality. Like, it's all yours. And I got to tell you, we need people who know they are enough to heal our world. Our world is so full of pain right now. And, and just thinking a little bit more positively about things, it's not going to make it better. We need people who've made this journey of saying, okay, you're in charge. I'm not. 
And so I hear your voice speaking into my chest. I am enough. Those are the people who will heal the world. So we're going we're gonna to sing a song, and here's what I'd like you to do. We're going to take the elements of communion together. And I'm going to give you a, a, a minute to think about your life and take an inventory of your life. And as you do, as you take this bread and you dip it in this cup, what I want you to remember when you do it is that this represents the body and blood of Jesus, that, that Jesus didn't just think positive thoughts about you and that's what made the difference. <laughs> he wasn't like, I'm going to think better about you and I like you. He does. But what he did is he put his money where his mouth was and he put his body on the line. He put his life on the line for you. And so maybe today is the day that you, you say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to surrender my, all my life to Christ. I'm not going to play this game anymore, this like pseudo-spiritual game. and I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to receive, the, he offered his life, I'm going to offer mine back. And then you receive what he's done on your behalf. Now, listen, you may not be there yet. I get it. I get it. It's a journey. You're always welcome here. And you may just say, I just need to know that God loves me. Well, you come here. You come to this table. This represents a, a, a table that you can have a seat at, that God's pulled out the seat and set the table, a place setting for you, and the knife and the fork, and he's waiting for you, and he wants you as a part of his family. It starts there, right? It starts with knowing that you're in, and then you can give your life to Christ. So maybe that's where you are. That's okay. But I, I want you to take a, an inventory. While they kind of sing these opening few lines for just a, a few seconds, I want you to just take an inventory of your life. And have, have you surrendered it? I mean, surrendered it to Christ? The old timers, they used to have this phrase. They said, we give God the unknown bundle. Because that can seem so, surrender my life to Christ. What does that mean? And they said, well, all of us have this unknown little bundle. If we were to say, I'm going to surrender my life. But here's this unknown bundle. I don't know what's in that bundle, but when it opens up and things come out of it, I'm going to give those to you too. And, and I want you to take an inventory of your life and, and surrender your life to Jesus. This Sunday after Resurrection Day. And live the new life that he meant for you to live. So let me pray. And then we'll do that together. Thank you, God, that you, uh, you came all the way down. You took the form of a man, came as a baby, came into our world, you moved into our neighborhood, you took on flesh and blood. You know what it is to be tired, you know what it is to be stressed, you know what it is to be overwhelmed. You know what it is to be tugged in a thousand directions. You, you understand. And you came to bring us life that's more abundant, that's bigger, that's better. So help us today to see that the offer uh, in our world of how we get to life, help us to see how inadequate it is, how it's a dead-end game, how it's a rat race. Help us to see how beautiful your invitation is. That put into our chest can be the message. You are enough because you're my kid. We want that. 
And so we're so grateful that you offered not words to us, you offered your life for us. Thank you. So we receive together the life that you gave for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to think for just a few minutes, and then Tim in just a minute will invite you forward to take communion.